Don't you love our musicians? Just, yeah, let's give them a round of applause. Great gratitude for people using their gifts. And all this week I was thinking, as Julie has been working very hard to get this team together to do the Vacation Bible School, how thankful we are that there are teachers willing to pour their lives out in the lives of young people. And it's such a great thing to be a part of a family of God. So Julia is here. If your children are here, would like to meet her uh, with Bible bags, you can do so. The rest of us, let's take our scriptures and turn to Romans chapter 8. I told you last week we're spending most of our time this summer in the book of Genesis and Exodus looking at these primal stories that form the faith and that express to us what it is to walk with God and what temptation is and all that kind of stuff. We'll go back to that next week. But the lectionary actually takes us to a wonderful uh, New Testament understanding that is implicit in all that the Old Testament does, but Jesus uh, um, and Paul in the text that we're about to read uh, expand that as Jesus and Paul both expand. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 8. We're going to go through verse 12 through 25 in, in just a moment. One of the problems that we all have living in this broken world is that we can easily become obsessed with the danger that this brokenness can cause to us. Whether it's global warming or missiles in Israel and Palestine, untreatable diseases that can pop upon us at any given moment, economic collapse and things that we've placed our security. We are all painfully aware uh, that anything can happen at any time in almost any area of our lives and we will all suffer, or at least we will suffer individually. Now, no one argues with the, the fact that the world is broken. Uh, you can go to any philosophy or any religion or any place in society, and they would all say, yeah, there's something really wrong with the world. The question is, what is broken? Why is it broken? How did it get broken? And what are the solutions? That's where the divisions and the discussions occur. For example, let me just take one area that has a lot of media attention, and that of global warming or climate change. As you know, the United States is divided on the causes of this warming change, or even if there is a real change in our climate. If there is global warming, the theory goes, the cause is that there are too many humans who are using too many fossil fuels, and we need to change our human behavior. However, the other half of Americans deny that chart, that uh, change is needed, or even if there is a change in the climate, it, it, the theory goes that it was a natural cycle, that it's not caused by human behavior, and therefore there is no human behavior that needs to change. We're just going through something that has happened throughout all the eons of time. Now, as you can see, the problem is both agreeing on what the problem is, is it actually a problem is there a brokenness and then agreeing on the cause which would then of course cause us to agree on a solution and we would move forward some see nothing wrong see so neat see uh, there's no need for us to change any of our human uh, behavior and others see great danger and are calling us uh, as all of humanity throughout the world to make a change now for the sake of our children and grandchildren now I use that as an example to get at the larger problem of our text today. In this broken world, there are those who do not see anything wrong with human behavior. 
and would even deny that sin exists. And there are others who see great danger and call on all humanity to change the way that we are living. Now, just as global warming or climate change will eventually reveal who is accurate in their assessment, humanity as a whole will live that out. So it is with sin. And it doesn't matter what anybody thinks or what our theories are. In the final analysis, this is not about theory. This is about reality. It's about the actual world and our actual lives, both here and in the world to come. We have, over the last two weeks, been exploring the nature of sin addiction as we began the month looking at that. And last week we explored temptation. Irresistible, it seems so often to us when temptation comes upon us. Two weeks ago we talked about how we're broken in our addiction. And we noted that at the core of all addictions is this sin addiction, this becoming enslaved to sin in all of its various forms. And we need God's help if we're going to get free from that brokenness of mind, brokenness of will, inability to take care of ourselves. We saw that the first three steps of the 12-step program, the most effective transformative thing in our world today, is first of all to acknowledge that we are enslaved, that we have things in our lives that we've lost power over. Then to be humble. To admit that we need a power greater than ourselves then, since we've lost control, to step in and to help us. And the third step of the 12 steps is to in fact surrender to God and to allow God to be a higher power in our lives so that we can be free from these things that so deform and destroy and harm individually and corporately. Last week we talked about temptation as we looked at Esau and Jacob, and we saw that both faced an irresistible temptation. For Esau, he wanted this special lentil stew so much that he was willing to sell his birthright, his place in the family, his place in history, so that he could have that momentary pleasure that was then over, and he left. For Jacob, we saw that he was willing to manipulate his brother and to take from him what was not rightfully Jacob's. And we realize that as Esau despised his birthright and Jacob despised his brother, they were both set up for a temptation. Perhaps they were careless about it and we talked about how we set ourselves up sometimes by just being careless. Or perhaps they very purposefully, actively despised. And when you do that, of course, you despise the things that are most valuable in your lives your relationships, your marriage, your faith, your justice, your integrity, and on and on. So we set ourselves up for what feels like an irresistible temptation when in fact we despise the things that value or are careless about the things that value. In our text today, we are picking up the words of Paul once more to continue the discussion of our brokenness. And we want to take it now to the next level, to the systemic level, to the level of creation and institutions, to the level of our justice systems, our educational systems, our economic systems. Sin that has so coagulated that it's formed a clot and it's stealing the life of that which is meant to serve 
the organizations of our, of our world. A sin that breaks the heart, in fact, as we recognize that these things are so much larger. Now, as we'll see, the brokenness of our world is not just brokenness of me or of you or even of us or of ours. Sin permeates everything such that all of creation, all systems, are groaning in travail, wanting to give birth to a healed world, a new heaven, and a new earth. Now this is true of all of our institutions, church and state, education and business, law and government, entertainment and community, as we put in these checks and balances and try to keep this brokenness back and in place, or as we even put in place procedures and laws to manage the brokenness of our world, we all know that for the world to actually be healed, there has to be at the core a healing of the human heart, our human behavior, this human sin, that must be healed. And then we must take these healed hearts and actively work within creation itself, in creation care, plant the trees, care for the environment, and we must work within the systems of the world so that we bring justice, we bring righteousness. Changed human behavior from changed human convictions changes our systems. So that's what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about the next stage of God's healing of our world. So Rome chapter 8, uh, Paul's letter to the church of Rome, Romans chapter 8, verse 12, and we're going to go through the 25th verse. Paul writes, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit that received, the Spirit you received, does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba. Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of uh, we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we, all, we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they've already have? 
But we hope for what we do not yet have. We wait for it patiently. Now keep that open before you and let's pray. Father, we're so aware uh, that uh, the humanity in which we live is a very complex social system and that we create all kinds of institutions and organizations to do our will. And we would ask that you be with us as your children today, that not only would we be free personally from enslavement of sin, nor would we, and we would be aware of these temptations that would so damage us, but that we'd also take our place within society and work for justice in all the ways where justice is needed, that we might bring your compassion to bear through all things. And so be with each of us. We're all in very different places in our lives with different opportunities. So I would ask that your Holy Spirit would, would enlighten each of our minds and, and what you call us each to do. And of course, we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that C.S. Lewis said that has always haunted me is he explains that we often think that Hitler was a far more evil person than we are. And he suggests that the difference, though, is not in the evil that is within him or me or you, but rather the opportunity, the mechanism, the ability to express the evil. In other words, what he says is, if I have an angry thought towards a person because they swindled me in some kind of economic exchange, or they betrayed me in some kind of relational uh, betrayal, or they even cut me off in traffic and I have a moment of anger, and I would like to do them harm, the difference between me and Hitler is that Hitler had the means to fulfill his anger. He owned the gas chambers. He controlled the army. He was president of the government. He had the place of power at the head of the institutions to do his vengeance. Now, besides causing me to stop and think whenever I first read that, and it's haunted me, as I said, throughout my life, and so I have to be humble and honest and think is the only reason I'm not a Hitler is because I don't have a way of hurting them back. And don't I need to, in fact, change my basic core attitude towards everyone I meet? And I can only do that through the power of God, surrendering to Him and letting Him work within me. So besides making me very aware that each one of us need to always be humble and, and surrender before God, it also makes us aware that human institutions, government and armies and economic systems and educational systems and legal systems and all the things that, that we create, they do human bidding. Now, sociologists say, well, institutions are larger than the sum of the human beings that are a part of it and all of that. And I, I recognize that some of that is true. But I also recognize the truth that if a human being doesn't want to use the legal system for dishonest uh, power over another person, or if a human being doesn't want to use the economic system for selfish gain at the cost of others who will become impoverished because of it, that the system in and of itself doesn't go out after the poor and after the powerless, that it's some human being that is using the system to hurt us. It requires a human driver. 
And if that system could put voice to what it feels, whatever institution we have in our society, I suspect that it would say something about, I'm doing what I'm doing not by my choice to harm or impoverish or imprison or to not educate. It is the will of the one to whom I am subjected. But I have hope in the legal system or the economic system or the educational system that one day I will be liberated from this bondage to decay and I will be brought into freedom and glory by the children of God. You notice immediately that the language is not that institutions can change themselves, but it's rather that the children of God who are to have dominion over the earth and to care for one another would in fact begin to live in such a way that this world becomes a new heaven and a new earth, a place liberated by the children of God. But if that's true, and if that's what Paul is saying, then what does that look like? What does it look like for you and for me and for us as uh, Christians in our generation? Well, if one of our three tasks is to not only get free from sin personally, deliver me from evil, and get free from that addiction in our own lives. And if the second responsibility is to resist temptation and not be led into temptation, then what does the third look like? Liberating the world so it's not bound to a decay and a destruction, this bondage of decay. Well, I would suggest that Paul gives us three aspects to it. And you might want to read through uh, this text several times and, and allow the Holy Spirit to, to speak to you in terms of your own relationship to the organizations in which we are all a part. First, that the children of God are led by the Spirit of God. We are, Paul explains, no longer slaves living in fear but we are children adopted into a close Abba, which is just a Hebrew word for Dada. It's an intimate father-child relationship. Now, if you think about that, you realize that the systemic sin, which occurs so often in our institutions and our larger governments and businesses, are led by people who are enslaved by fear. Fear. All kinds of fear. Fear of scarcity, fear of failure, fear of others. And instead of responding to the Father as children who are led by His love, such that we bring His love into the organizations we lead and we're, we are involved in, so that these organizations can, in fact, bring love and care and provision into the lives of others, we often, out of fear do not involve ourselves in changing the very institutions that are harming us and harming the people with whom we share this world. What is interesting psychologically is that when a person has fear, they become controlling and they try to control everything so that they don't have to be afraid. And we see that at the systemic level when institutions become very controlling and they try to control everyone and everything as they are very, very intrusive and aggressive and uh, damaging in their interaction with us. So let's stop and let's simply ask ourselves the question, 
Am I allowing the Spirit to lead me? Am I using my positions of authority or leadership or involvement in all the various organizations of which we're all a part to bring justice and love and compassion? Or am I afraid and still in a bondage of fear? And do I let the fears of others go unchecked? Do I speak up with the power of God to bring compassionate love into the decision-making, whatever area of society and business it is, rather than selfish gain or fear of what others, whoever the other is, might do if we don't control them. Now, second, Paul explains that this process of bringing liberation to all of creation and all of her organizations is going to require our suffering. Now, I know if you're like me, one of the first things I would think of following the, the Lord and following the Spirit's leadership is that that should mean that I would be happy. Nowhere in Scripture does it promise that. It promises suffering. It promises, in fact, a spiritual battle where good and evil are always going to confront one another and that we join into the sufferings of our Lord in order to bring about redemption into our, into our society and into our world. We should not be surprised that there is a struggle to set our world free. We should be ready to embrace it as a part of what it means to be a child of God in a world that's broken and a world that's going to fight against healing. So again, let's ask ourselves the simple question, am I willing to share in the suffering of Christ as I lead my organization or as I'm involved in my organization or as I do my voting or whatever it is that I'm doing with the systems of our world, the institutions and organizations of our world? Do I bring God's love into government, courtroom, classroom, and business decisions? And then last, Paul explains that this process of liberating creation and all of the world's organizations in the process is like childbirth. It doesn't just happen presto with a microwave solution to the difficulties of our world. Yes, we're full of hope, but it's a patient hope. It's a generational hope. We do the best we can do in our generation and inspire the next to pick up this cause of justice and righteousness in the world such that we do not just go on and act as though there are no poor and there are no suffering powerless ones, but rather we share with them who God is and what God wants to do in this world. I would love for God to just end sin and end, end addictions. I would love for him to remove all temptations. I would love for him to just simply make justice the rule of the land that everyone abides by. But he has allowed us as human beings to be a part of this whole process with ultimate and final freedom to choose if we're going to be a part of this world's solutions and righteousness, bringing his healing into all creation and changing all creation. Pastor Martin Luther King Jr. once wrote, True compassion is more than flinging a coin at a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. So as we go to God in prayer, 
let's pray that the rebirth, the restructuring of the world, that the children of God are going to bring about will happen through us, through you, through me, and that we'll be a part of whatever uh, puzzle piece we are in the great new heaven and new earth that we're going to bring, that we'll fulfill our part. Let's spend time with God.